Hey, we are, um, we are kicking off a new series today. We're going to go over the next seven weeks, uh, and it's very clearly called Simple. Um, and I had coffee with a friend this, this week, and one of the things that we talked about as we were, as we were chatting was just uh, a conversation that he had with a friend. Uh, and his friend Ted looked at him and said, I just feel like life is getting harder. I just feel like life is getting more difficult. As we were talking about that, it's just that's one of those things that's real. If we're being honest, it is. Life's getting more complicated. It's getting more complex. Like trying to raise kids is way more complicated and complex than it was uh, a few years ago. I mean, the, the fact that like right now our 10-year-old and our 8-year-old, we're having to navigate like internet and phones and all that kind of stuff. They want a phone. And I told him, I said, you can have a phone. It's going to be the jitterbug. That's going to be the, have you seen those? The ones that, that like, you, they has like the neck lanyard. It's for like older folks that has three buttons and they're all pre-programmed. And it's like this big, Right. I'm like, yeah, you can have a phone, but that's a phone. That's going to be your first phone. And Jack's like, Dad. I'm like, oh, I'm serious. Don't test me, right? It's, it's really, it's difficult. Like raising kids now is way more complicated and complex than it was. Being a kid is way more complicated and complex than it was uh, a few years ago. Our jobs, relationships, interactions with people, politics, parenting, marriage, dating, sexuality, discerning right from wrong, everything tied to and connected to basically what we would call the human experience is growing way more complicated and way more complex. It's more difficult, right? It's, it's getting more difficult. It's getting harder. And so when it comes to kind of these levels of complication and complexity in our lives, it feels like we're only like picking up speed going downhill without brakes. And it feels like there's no way to slow down, let alone stop. And so the truth is this. We face more personal conditions, which are if statements. We face more personal conditions, which say if you want this, there are more if statements in our lives now. You have to uh, agree to terms of service. You have to, uh, you know, agree to this, that, or the other. It's like, if you want this, here's, here are the conditions. We have more personal conditions, and we have more possible consequences than ever before. Those are the then statements. If you do this, then this happens. If you want this, then you must do this, right? Those kinds of things. And so what happens is this. Strings get attached to most things in life. It just kind of feels at this point in our lives like there's really nothing that comes with no strings attached. And if it does, there's a part of us that kind of gets a little suspect of like, I don't know, this seems too good to be true. Like, what's the catch? There's all these kinds of if-then statements, if not this, then not that. If you do this, then you get this. And, and so whether they are intended or unintended, like we are the ones who end up on the hook when it comes to having to navigate all of this. And so this is what happens. Either we adhere to all of the personal conditions that, that end up being put on us, or we wind up on the wrong end of all the possible consequences. And the truth is, that also happens in the church. Right? There are conditions and consequences and complications and complexities and those kinds of things in the church. I mean, a lot of us in this place, in, in the conversations that I know I've had with, with a few folks and a few families, church hurt is real. And a lot of us have encountered that, myself included. And again, it's because we get into to spaces even like this, and we start to add different conditions and consequences into even how we function as a church. And so there, there's a great book called The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. I'm a huge Dallas Willard fan. And he, he says this in that book. He says that, that often the church makes things more difficult and more complex and more complicated by, by imposing two sets of conditions and consequences on people. And the first one is external conformity, which basically means this. If you want to be a part of a community like this, then, then you need to look the part and act the part. 
Like you need to look the part and act the part, right? That's kind of that external conformity. When you step into a, to a, to a place, right, you must conform to the pattern and image that we want to set. So look the part and act the part. And then the second piece would be what he calls professing a perfectly correct doctrine, which would mean this, speak the part. You look the part, you speak the part, you act the part, if this, then that. He goes on to say that, that these two kind of conditions and, and consequences, these either crush the human mind and soul and separate people from Jesus, or they produce hidebound legalists. We had to look up what hidebound meant. It means unwilling and unable to change. And theological experts, who he says, are the folks whose lips are close to God and their hearts are far away from him. And he says this, you cannot build a house on the rock this way. Not just for me, it was a super convicting thing to read. And, and as I'm reading this, this came on the, the heels of, of, of an opportunity that I had, a meeting I had with, with a guy that, uh, that I just really met uh, over the course of a, of a men's retreat that, that I had the chance to staff. It was a guy who, who, while we were on the retreat, we connected, and so we were able to grab coffee uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, and, and his life right now, he says, you know, he would say, coming from his own mouth, he would say, my life has been built around... Look the part, act the part, and speak the part. And he said, because of that, right, you know, you look at, at where we live, the clothes we wear, even what we look like, right, the cars we drive, the jobs we have, all of those things, right, look the part, act the part, and speak the part. We're doing all of the things that are required of us, right, in our community. And he said, but here's the deal. Because of that, my marriage hit a wall, and I couldn't seek help for my marriage. I couldn't share what was happening in my family because even asking or admitting that something wasn't perfect was a violation of the conditions and consequences of the look the part, act the part, speak the part culture. And that came with costs and consequences. It's like if we, if we said, hey, our, our, we're really struggling in our marriage or, or, or we're kind of, you know, things, there's distance between us, right? Or, or our kids, like we're, we're struggling with parenting. He said, if we said any of those things, we would have lost our friends. We would have lost our status. We would have lost influence. I mean, we were hanging with the right crowd, the right people. Like, we were in the in crowd. And he said, so in trying to look the part, act the part, and speak the part, their lives felt, felt completely and totally apart, right under the noses of their church and their church community. And as I'm listening to him kind of unpack this story, I mean, honestly, I'll be real with you. I, I started to get kind of angry. Like, what kind of church do you go to that you're not allowed to let people see that you're hurt? And I mean, I can't believe it. Like, part of me is like, give me the phone number of the pastor, right? Like, I'll use my Google Voice number, which is complete. I'll call him and I'll just I'll yell at him for you, right? Like, like I just I started getting angry. But then I realized in this is like, you know, this is actually why we need to have this conversation. This is why we need to dive into scripture. This is why we need to look into what does it really mean for us to simplify, to, to, to get rid of, right, all of those consequences and conditions that, that we want to add into even our relationship with Jesus and our relationship with each other. And so over the next seven weeks, we're going to be walking through straight through the book of Philippians, except for today, right? Today we're going to be in Acts. Uh, but we're going to be looking at uncomplicating what it means to live this with God life. And the with God life, if you're new to adventure, is basically this. It's the life that Jesus makes possible. Everything that we celebrated last week at Easter, right, that gives us the opportunity to live a life with God. Not apart from him, 
but with him and with his spirit within us. And all of that is made possible by Jesus, right? Jesus, who lived a life, right, and died a death and was resurrected so that we could have this relationship with God. Jesus makes the with God life possible. But I, but I need you to hear me say this, okay? It's really important. Simple doesn't mean easy. And I think, again, I just want to be honest. Simple doesn't mean easy. When we talk about making things simple, here's what we mean, and we're going to come back to this every week. When we talk about simple, what simple means is this. Simple means clear, real, right, and true. And I think those things right there, the reason that we talk about these four things is because right now, most of our lives are anything but this. Right? Most of kind of what we do and, and most of the things that we encounter aren't clear. They're real muddy. They're real muddy, they're real murky, they're real foggy. You know, it's hard to tell what's real and what's not. It's hard to determine what's right and what's wrong. And really, at this point, too, truth, like truth has become something that's on a sliding scale. It's like I absolutely believe in something until I absolutely don't. And then I absolutely believe in something else. And I just want to be honest. Truth on a sliding scale or truth that bends and flexes isn't actually true. It's a version of the truth it's actually a lie, right, just disguised as something that's real. So we want to talk about what does it mean for us as believers in Jesus, as a community of faith, right, a community of friends and families that are looking to live this with God life like we are just trying the best we can some days to, to get out of bed. What does it mean for us to simplify things, to get back to what's clear, real, right, and true? And so coming out of Easter, we felt like that's what we needed to unpack this together, right? That this, this clear, real, right, and true life that Jesus makes possible. And so what we're going to do over the next few weeks is we're going to declutter. Like we need to declutter and toss out all of the religious garbage and all of the, the, the conditions and consequences that, that get attached to being a believer and follower of Jesus. And here's why. Because then we can really get at what Jesus really desires for us and makes possible for us, right? Personally and also as a community, Right? So this applies to us as individuals, but it also applies to us as a church, as a church family. And so before we dive into Acts today, I just want to talk to two groups of people. Right? So first off, this. For those of us who have been crushed in the past, right? that, that maybe we've been crushed by this kind of act apart, speak the part, like the conditions and consequences. We walked in this morning, and like we walk into church, we've experienced church hurt, we kind of walk in like this. You know, waiting for it to happen again, or we walk in expecting the roof to fall in, like cave in on us. I just want to say this. The goal for the next seven weeks is this, to lift your head up, to lift your eyes up. And you can see what, what crushed you in the past wasn't actually Jesus. It was someone who put words in his mouth and said things that he would never say. Or someone put actions, right? They applied their actions to him, and it's things Jesus would never do. And here's the deal. You're not too broken, and you're not too messy. That's the truth. That's what we need to know. Jesus isn't mad at you. Jesus loves you, and he likes you both. And there's a life that he desires for us, right? And that life is still on the table. Now, for those of us who have white-knuckled the look the part, act the part, speak the part, conditions and consequences, right, the goal for the next seven weeks is this, for you to get your heads out of your self-righteousness, right? Get your heads out of your self-righteousness so you can see that God is not done with you yet. You don't have it all figured out. You don't have the Christianity market cornered. None of us do. There's more that God wants for you. And having joy in him, right, having joy in the with God life, this thing that we've white knuckled, that, that honestly legalism has sucked the joy out of the relationship with Jesus, it's still possible. You can still have joy 
in your relationship with Jesus. That's possible for all of us. Because according to Dallas Willard, he says this, the path to living a simple, decluttered, with God kind of life is paved by two things. Abundance, which is delighting in the truth, and the power and the presence of God at work in us, and obedience, which is becoming a lover of the ways of Jesus. And I think those are great ways to kind of def- define abundance and obedience. It's it. Abundance is it's delighting in this truth and presence and power that is available to us, that Jesus makes possible. And obedience is, it's, it is learning to, to love the ways of Jesus. This isn't in my notes, but that just made me realize that I, I, I listened to a, a podcast this week, and, and one of the guys in the podcast was talking about, you know, confronting issues that we deal with, right? Patterns of sin, addiction, things like that. And a lot of times the way we approach these things is I, I need to stop. I, need, I must stop. And so the message we kind of tell ourselves is don't. Don't do this. Don't do this. You better not. All these kinds of things. And he said this, and as a quote I'll never forget. He said, oftentimes wickedness is driven out by greater affection. Meaning that a lot of times the messages of don't, you better not, must stop, right, must hate this, actually gets more effectively driven out by learning to love the things of Jesus more. Right? As you begin to love the things of Jesus, it pushes out the things that are not of him. And C.S. Lewis, he says it like this. He says, we can't find happiness or joy apart from a life of obedience to the teachings of Jesus. God cannot give us, right, a, a happiness and a peace apart from himself because it's not there. There's no such thing, he says. And here's what happens. We often plead, God, give me happiness and peace, but let me also go and live my life as I please. And God answers, I cannot give you that because you're asking for something that does not exist. Not to me, like that hit me like a ton of bricks this week. Because how often do we seek peace and joy and happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction in our own ways? And our prayers and our messaging, our conversations with God is like, God, like I think I can do this life thing better than you, right? So I'm just going to make my own decisions. And I'm going to expect to find peace and happiness and joy and satisfaction my own way, right? I want this. I want you in my life, right, but on my terms and on my conditions, I want to hang out with you an hour on Sundays, and I might every now and then hang out with you some on Wednesdays. But beyond that, I want to search for peace and happiness and joy and satisfaction on my own. And God says, listen, you're not going to find it because you're searching for something that doesn't exist. So we're going to dive into, we're going to uncomplicate the, the, the simple, right, the simple with God life that, that, that he wants us to live, right? The clear and real and true path to living the life that God desires for us, and that happens through abundance and obedience. And to do this, like I said, we're going to be walking through the book of Philippians. And you go like, why Philippians? Great question, right? Philippians is one of Paul's shortest letters. So Paul was a church planner, right? Wrote most of the New Testament. He was a missionary. He was a church planner. Had a radical experience with Jesus on the road where he was going to actually stomp out the church, meets Jesus face to face, completely changes his life. That kind of happens, right? That's kind of what Jesus is in the business of doing. And so Paul would go around from all these different communities and he would plant churches. And what churches were, they weren't buildings. Right? A lot of times we associate church with an address, and for Paul, it wasn't a building, it was, it was a community of people. Community of people like us that are looking to live the with God life, that are looking to, to, to live that abundant and obedient life when it comes to Jesus. And Philippians is only four chapters, it's 104 verses. But here's the thing that's unique about Philippians. It's the only one of Paul's letters that he writes to a group of people like us that does not specifically deal with some kind of crisis in the church. A lot of times Paul would write letters to churches because they were dealing with something that was pretty heavy. Or sometimes he would write letters to churches to kind of knock some sense into them because they were being foolish. 
that's not what, Philippians is actually the only letter that Paul doesn't write to address a crisis or to deal with foolish behavior. Matt Chandler says this, Philippians is a compact, concise, and highly concentrated rundown of what it means and what it looks like to be a mature man or woman in Christ. That's a big deal. And we find that in this book, this letter called Philippians. And when it comes to simplifying what it means and what it looks like and how we live the with God life, that's what we're after. Becoming men and women, moms, dads, right, husbands, wives, people, like, that, that, that are mature in our relationship with Jesus. And Philippians gives us a chance to kind of approach this from, from a different perspective. A lot of times, the way we approach these kinds of things are from like a do not perspective. But this actually is, is the perspective of here's what you're to do. Here's what I want you to do. Here's what this looks like. Here's a, a, a pretty clear example. And so today, we're going to dive into the simple church. So like, what is this? What is clear, real, right, and true when it comes to the church? So again, grab your Bibles, flip open to Acts chapter 16. Today is the, the only week that we're going to be in a different book than, than Philippians. Acts chapter 16. And what we're going to read about today and what we're going to unpack together is the moment that this church in Philippi, this place called Philippi, started. And so... I just kind of want to set the stage here. Starting in Acts 16, we're going to start in verse 11. It says this, so, so setting sail from Troas, we, which is Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and, and it says that, that we remained in this city for some days. Now, the book of Acts is actually written by Luke, same Luke that wrote, the biography of Jesus, Luke. And so Luke is traveling with Paul and this little crew, right? So there's a ton of really cool stuff that happens in the book of Acts. Acts is 35 years of church history. It's super fascinating. But here, what we're going to pick up is this fearsome foursome. Paul, si Silas, Timothy, and Luke, right? They're landing in this place called Philippi. And you can go back and read how they get there. It's cool moments. But, like, I just want to give you some background on kind of what's going on here. So Philippi was a Roman military retirement community. And so it would have been a place that's pretty, pretty affluent, right? There would have been a lot of wealth, a lot of status. Most of the population were, were men and their families, right, who were at one point like high-ranking military officers. And then it's their wives and their kids. And because of this, Philippi was an independent city, right? They weren't governed by Rome like the rest of the world was. And so they could kind of govern themselves. They could kind of set their own rules. They could do the things that they wanted to do. They could do all the stuff that, like, they could just kind of run their lives the way they wanted to. And that's going to play a big role here in just a minute. But look at verse 13. It says this, on the Sabbath day, we went out to the riverside, right? We went outside the gates of the city to the riverside where we supposed there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So catch this, okay? If you're taking notes, you can grab pictures of the screen or you can highlight, underline in your Bible. They go outside of the city gates. The reason that Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, they go outside of the city, right, by this riverside, right, they're, they're looking for a place of prayer because in Philippi, because they could govern themselves and do what they wanted, the rule was this. If you don't buy into and follow and believe in kind of Roman religiosity, which is like polytheism, Rome had like all these different gods that they worshipped in different ways, right? If you don't buy into kind of our way, like our religion, then you're not allowed to worship in our city. You can't worship in here. You have to do it our way or you have to go outside of the city. If you had a different faith, if you had a different belief system, the only place you were allowed to worship was outside of the city gate. One commentary I read said this, that there was a strong divide in Philippi when it came to race and religion. 
Because, again, you've got to remember, the, the, the people, the, the primary population in Philippi, these were Roman military officers. They were Roman-born, Roman-bred, right, and all of their families. And so race and religion in Philippi were a big deal, and there was a big divide. Either you do it like us, you look like us, sound like us, look the part, act the part, speak the part. And if you're not willing to do that, you have to go somewhere else. That was kind of their take. They could make up their own rules. They could run things how they wanted. And in Philippi, that made life difficult for people that came from different faith backgrounds, that were different from, that, that were different from people who, who lived in Philippi. And it's important for us to know that today when it comes to what's clear, right, real, and true for the church. The simple church, here's the truth, isn't always found in the easiest or most convenient places. And here's the deal. The simple church isn't always full of people who are just like us. They're different. They come from different places. They have different backgrounds. They have different stories. They have different jobs. They don't just look like us, sound like us, act like us. They come from different places. So the simple church, it's not always in the most easiest, in the easiest or most convenient place. And not everybody in the simple church looks the same, sounds the same, acts the same. Going on verse 14, it says this. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. And she was from the city of Thyatira, which is just a fun name to say, right? So Thyatira is actually in Asia. I don't go like super Bible nerd stuff this morning, but just hang with me, all right? So Thyatira is actually in Asia. It's not Roman, which means this. Lydia would have been an outsider. And Philippians tells us, or Acts tells us, that she was a seller of purple goods, right? Big Loose City fan, big Minnesota Vikings fan, right? She was in the fashion business. Here's the truth about, about Lydia. She was in the fashion business. And purple, here's the deal. Purple was the color of royalty. Purple was the color for people in high standing. It was the color of influential people. It's what they wanted to wear. So if you wore purple back in this day, it meant that you were somebody, right? You know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody, right? So kind of compare this to like modern day L.A. or New York. So if you're someone that's, that's a fashion designer, for, for high-end people, right, for influential people, for influencers and stars and, and important people, those kinds of things, wealthy people, you're going to go where they are. And that was kind of Lydia's deal. I mean, she was a fashion designer that made clothes for wealthy, influential, high-status people, people that wanted to be seen and known as being important, right? That was, that was her clientele. And so for Lydia and Philippi, business was great. She was crushing it. What you're going to find out here in a minute, Lydia was actually doing pretty well, right? She, she had some means, right? Lydia had some resources. But it says this, that Lydia, that she was a seller of purple goods, and then Luke adds this detail, who was also a worshiper of God. Pause here for just a second, because a lot of times our Bibles, even the ESV, translates what, what Luke is trying to get across here, translates worshiper of God. But here's how that actually, what that actually means. It means God-fearer. Right? So what that would, would mean is that the Greek word that's used here is theos, which is where we get the word theology. And that's a real general, vague word for like a deity. It doesn't mean God, like we talk about God, Yahweh. Right? That's not referring to God, Yahweh. So here's what we can take from this. Okay? Here's what this means. We're not sure what God Lydia worshipped. But here's what we do know, because she's outside the city. She rejected paganism. She rejected Roman polytheism. Because she went to a prayer meeting outside the city. Here's what we know about Lydia. Lydia is a seeker. Lydia is, is someone, she's like, listen, I, I know I don't believe what the Romans believe. And I know I don't believe what the people in Philippi believe. But I'm searching for and I'm seeking something that I can believe in. So Lydia, while she was in town on business, came outside of the city knowing that there was a chance 
that she could hear the truth of Scripture about the real, true God taught and unpacked. And it says this, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Paul's talking about Jesus. Paul's sharing the gospel, thing we talk about at Easter, right? That, that, God, that God's son, right, God with skin on, stepped out of paradise and perfection into our mess to die, right, for us, and then was resurrected to life to make this relationship that separate, what used to be separated by sin, it, we're not separated anymore. Why? Because the son has paid the price of sin and, and broken the power of death, right? That's what Paul is unpacking, and she believes it. Lydia, in this moment, believes this. It says this, after this, she was baptized, and her whole house as well. And he says, Luke says, she urged us, saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us, which means she insisted. And Lydia was someone, she didn't take no for an answer. Right? This is a strong woman. We talk about the women at Adventure, our warrior queens. Lydia, good example. This is a strong woman. She's listen, you're going to stay at my house. And the guys are probably going, ah, no, we'll, I'm not taking no for, okay, fine, right? We'll stay with you. So here's what we know. The first person that helped start this church at Philippi was a foreign fashion designer that was seeking something and someone real to believe in. And for us, the takeaway is this. The simple church is a place where outsiders and seekers are welcomed and invited to hear the truth of Jesus. So that's the first person. The first person on the, the church plant launch team was a foreign fashionista, right? Seller of purple goods. I'm in. Let's do this. Let's find the second one, right? Starting in verse 16, it says, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. Again, it was a, a Pythian spirit, right? Which means python or snake. It says that, that, she, that her, she brought her, her owners much gained by fortune telling, right? So here's what we need to know is this. Like, this girl is the opposite of Lydia. So if you're kind of getting pictures in your head of what this might look like, you know, Lydia was a pretty wealthy person, right, looking for something to, to, to real to believe in, right? She was a wealthy person from Asia. This girl is a poor, enslaved, and exploited Greek. Again, outsider, has nothing has no resources, and her life is, is, she's just being exploited by her owners. And it says this, that she followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, there's a part of you when you read this, at least for me at least, like, that you go, like, well, she's not wrong. Like, she's not wrong. Like, what she's saying is true. And, and like, Paul and his crew are like, getting some free press from the crazy girl, right? But her crying out, here's what we need to understand. It wasn't like the hot dog guy at the baseball game that you're really excited to see. You know, it's like, free hot dogs. And you're like, yes, right? It's, it's not that. This would have been like shrieking, screaming. And it wasn't in support of the message that Paul and his crew were there to give. It was mocking their message. Like, these guys are here to save you, right? Like, they think they're better than you. Like, like that's what it would have been like. It would have been really, really unpleasant. One author described it as like out of control and disruptive. And it says this, that she kept doing this for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned to her and said, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out of her this very hour, that very hour, in that instant. And I'll be honest with you, you read this, I'm like, I think I had that same reaction to my kids last week driving home from school. I became greatly annoyed at the repetitive conversation that was happening in the back seat, right? And I'm like, enough! Demons out! You know, like I'm looking at both my kids. 
just saying the same thing over and over and over again as loud as humanly possible. It's like, we thought it was a great idea to take them to the Mario movie, and then they keep going, peaches, peaches, peaches. And I'm like, if you go to see the movie, you know what I'm talking about. And if you've seen it, you're going, yeah, me too. There's a support group starting after service for all parents who had to go see the Mario movie. But you, you want to look at them and go, not another word, just shut up. And I love the way Matt Chandler describes this moment. He says this, Paul commands the thing that ruled her on the inside, the thing that defined her life, the thing that, that became her identity. He commands that thing to come out. And in an instant, she becomes aware of the glorious power of Jesus and finds true salvation. So the first person in the church was a wealthy foreign fashion designer to the rich and famous. The second person in the church was a poor former slave girl that had been exploited and used by others. So here's the takeaway, right? The simple church is a place for the poor. It's a place for the sick. It's a place for the exploited, the lost, the broken, the confused. It's a place for them to find help and hope and redemption, especially when it comes to the truth of salvation. About 10 years ago, I was a youth pastor. And and I can remember this moment because after service, we had this space in our youth room that we called the family room. And it was a place that, that we said, listen, if you need prayer or, or if, you need any, if, if you need to talk about anything, you've got questions, whatever it is, about anything we've talked about today, meet us back in the family room. We'd love to talk with you. And so I remember this day, a, a young girl, 16 years old, came up. And the first question she asked me was this. She said, I've got a question for you. I said, okay. She said, who's allowed to come to church here? And I kind of knew what she was getting at. But I asked her, I said, what do you mean by that? She said, I just really want to know if I'm allowed to come to church here. I said, well, well explain that to me. Like, help me understand w- w- what it is. Like, you know, why would you ask that question? She said, well, a couple of years ago I came out. And the church that we used to go to told my parents and my family that we were not allowed to come there anymore. And so I'm, I'm asking, as someone who is same-sex attracted and has come out as, as, as someone living a same-sex attracted lifestyle, am I allowed to be here? Am I allowed to come here? And I remember in that moment having this conversation with her. I said, you absolutely are allowed to come here. But I need you to know something, right? The thing that you're wrestling with, the thing that you struggle with when it comes to your sexuality, trying to figure out what's clear, real, right, and true, everybody in this room struggles with something. And the same is true here. Every person, every student in that space had something they were wrestling with. It may not have been their sexuality, but it was probably something else. Everybody had something they were wrestling with. Everyone had something, that the, some, some sin pattern in their life that they were trying to figure out, how do I deal with this? I said, here's the deal. You're in the same boat as all of us. Because of the cross of Jesus, no sin, no one sin is worse than any other, right? There's no hierarchy. So you're allowed to come in here and wrestle with everybody else who's wrestling with something in their life that they're not sure if this is clear, real, right, or true. But I did say this. I said, I need you to know something. Here's what we believe. We believe that when God set up relationships, when he set up intimacy, specifically sexual intimacy, he set those up to be between a man and a woman inside the covenant of marriage. That's what we believe. So you are 1,000% allowed to come to church here, but I need you to understand something. We're going to talk truth. So as long as you're good with that, I made this deal. I said, how about, how about this? If you keep coming and keep asking questions, we'll keep talking about the truth. We'll keep telling the truth. And we'll keep figuring out the best way to apply that to our lives together. Deal? She said, deal. 
Now, I'd love to tell you that, like, oh, yeah, she had this amazing conversion experience, all this kind of stuff. But here's the deal. Like, she graduated a couple years later. I have no idea what she's doing. But she showed up every Sunday. And in that space was able to hear the truth of who Jesus was and what Jesus wanted for her. And I think this is important for us. And here's the deal. I'm not, I don't look for opportunities to go, like, hey, I'm going pre- to preach on some provocative stuff. Like, let's press hot button issues. Really, for me, it's like when the scripture we talk, we talk about and unpack in this place allows us to talk about stuff like this, we're going to talk about it. We're not going to shy away from it. But I want us to understand something. Acceptance and affirmation are not the same thing. Our culture wants us to believe that they are. Our culture wants us to believe that you can't have one without the other. Our culture wants us to believe that by not affirming certain choices or lifestyles, etc., that run contrary to what we read and what we hold as truth, right, from Scripture, is hateful and that we are hateful. And that's not true. Here's what is true. You can, as a believer in Jesus, accept someone, welcome them in, see them as God does, share Jesus with them, and also not affirm and agree with their choices, lifestyles, political affiliations, or views that don't line up with what God says is good, real, right, and true, and best when it comes to our lives. Let me just give you some examples. Just some examples from, from, from Jesus, right? Like Jesus, there's a point in time when he's, he's in a house and a prostitute begins to anoint his feet with perfume that would have cost her a year's wage. And she starts to wipe it off with her hair. And the, the, the religious leaders, right, the, the, the self-righteous were going, how can you do this? And in that moment, it's a sweet moment between her and Jesus. Look what she's given up. She's coming to me to look for a way, a different way to live. Look what she's offered up. A year's wage to pour on my feet. Jesus sees her as, as God sees her because he was God with God with skin on. Zacchaeus, right? The wee little man. We sing about him in Sunday school. I mean, Zacchaeus was not just a thief, he was the chief thief. Right? Tax collectors back in this day could charge people whatever they wanted, and they could keep whatever the extra was apart from this for themselves and send whatever, whatever Rome required. They sent to Rome. They got to keep whatever. So Zacchaeus got rich by stealing from other people. And Jesus finds Zacchaeus in a tree, which I imagine would have been, like, that would have just been a sight to see. Like, there's a small person in a tree, right? I'm coming to your house. Um, and Jesus says, he's, I'm coming to your house. I want to spend my day with you. And then when Zacchaeus says, listen, I'm going to give everything back, not just everything back, but I'm going to give back multiples of what I've taken. And Jesus says, listen, this guy's the son of Abraham just like the rest of us. He says, the son of man didn't, didn't come just to, 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 serve, to, to be served, but to serve, right? The son of man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus said when, when he went to a party, Matthew, one of his disciples, was also a tax collector. Matthew threw a party for Jesus, a dinner for Jesus. Guess who's who's Matthew's friends were? Tax collectors, sinners. So he throws this party, and again, the religious leaders, the self-righteous, they're like, how dare you eat with those people? And Jesus' response was, who needs a doctor, the healthy or the sick? And then I love Jesus goes, go figure out what that means. Tim Keller says this, the most hateful thing we can do is allow someone to believe that sin is okay. But church, I need us to understand this. We have to be careful 
not to be hateful in our efforts to not be hateful. We have to be careful. And, and that's not just for the, the LGBTQ community, right? It's not just for conservatives or liberals. It's for all of us. We're all here to seek truth. We are all here to invite the Holy Spirit into our lives so that we repent, which means turn away, change direction. We repent because the Holy Spirit renovates our lives so that we look and live more like Jesus. The simple church is a church where anyone and everyone gets the opportunity to get in the same room with Jesus so they can work things out. Here's the one condition that I'm going to put on this. Don't try to cast demons out of people like Paul did, right? If we can, if we can all agree that as people walk in, we don't go, get out, right? Just don't do that, okay? But this is, a simple church is a place where anybody and everybody is welcome and accepted in this space to get in the same room with Jesus. Here's the deal. If you keep showing up, we'll keep telling the truth. That's what I promise. Let's look at number three, right? So there's one other person that joins this kind of ragtag crew, starting in verse 23. So the owners of this slave girl, they get mad, and they throw uh, Paul and his crew in jail after they're beaten, right? So it says this, when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them in prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safe. And having received the order, he put them into the inner prison, and he fastened their feet in stock. So, again, if you're keeping score, we have a foreign fashion designer, a former slave girl, and now we've got a jailer who's going to jump into the mix. And, and here's the deal. This, this jailer in this story most likely would have been an Army veteran, Probably not a high-ranking official. He was a grunt. And he was doing his job. And doing the job that he was doing as the jailer meant that he got to live in a place called Philippi, right? This is the kind of blue-collar dude that's working a job to provide a good life and good opportunities for, him, for his family. And here's what he wants to do. He wants to clock in, do his job, go home, grab a beer, watch the game, right? That's, his, that's what he wants to do. That's the kind of guy he is. It says this. About midnight, Paul and Silas, they were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were all listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations uh, of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everybody's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had all escaped. Roman policy was this. If a prisoner got lost, whoever lost the prisoner was killed. And so this jailer, because... He is a, he's a guy who is bound by duty and bound by honor. That's how he lived his whole life. He sees that the cells are open, right, immediately assumes that all the prisoners have escaped and draws his sword to fulfill his duty. I lost them. I'll die. This happened on my watch. Now I must die. It says this in verse 28. Paul cried out with a loud breath, don't harm yourself. We're still here. And the jailer called for lights, and he rushed in. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And I thought to myself, why did he do that? Like, why did he fall down before Paul? This guy wouldn't have believed the things. He would have heard him singing songs. He would have heard him, like, he would have been there, like, overhearing that stuff. He didn't believe this. This guy, again, like, he just, he just wants to do his job and go home. Why did he fall down at the feet of, uh, of Paul and Silas? Here's why. Paul and Silas would have known the Roman prisoner policy. They would have known what happened. They knew that if, if we bolt, if we take the opportunity to run, here's what we're doing. We're actually condemning that man to die. But if we stay put, it means we're saving his life. That's why he comes and falls at their feet. Because by not leaving, by not running, they actually saved his life. It says this in verse 30. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Again, 
honor bound, duty, former, like, Army vet, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They've been praying. They would have, they've, they've been singing. He would have heard some of that stuff. And they said this, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds because they'd been beaten before they were thrown in jail. And he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before him. And he rejoiced along with his entire household because he believed in God. Again, your scorecard now looks like this. The launch team for the Philippian church consisted foreign fashion designer and her family, former slave girl, blue-collar prison guard and his family. Not the varsity team, if we're just being real. Right? It's like, it's like uh, here's the deal. It was enough. It was perfect. Here's the deal. The simple church, here's what we learned from this. The simple church is for anyone. Anyone that wants to come and be a part of this this space, anyone that wants to learn how to make disciples and be made into a disciple, right, it's for everyone. And before we shut it down here today, before we close up, there's one other group of people that I I want us to look at, right, and that is Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. Because here's the deal. The only way for Lydia, the slave girl, and the jailer to become the launch team for the church is because Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke allowed themselves to be the delivery system for the gospel. And here's what the gospel is, right? The gospel is a new reality. So we think about gospel, it's it's this Greek word euangelion. It's another fun word to say. And, And we think of the gospel as like, well, it's the story of Jesus. It's the Jesus story. We hear it at Easter. The gospel actually means this. It's a proclamation or a declaration of a new reality. Like evangelism, euangelion, there were, there were gospels. Anytime that the emperor decided to do something and change the law, they would do, they would euangelion, they would gospel. Hey, the law has changed. There's a new way to live. The, the emperor says, you don't have to live the old way, you can live the new way. That's a gospel. The gospel of Jesus, the reason it's different is because it changes reality for all of humanity. There's a new way of living that's now possible. Because of Jesus, no one is too broken, too messy. No one is too far gone. No one is a lost cause. Everyone has the opportunity to believe and trust in him and receive the life that he wants us to, to live. So the gospel is what planted the church in Philippi. Paul and his team were just the means of getting it there. So here's the question I've got for us. What could the gospel do if you decided to take it wherever you went? What would happen? Here's what the end result is, what we can read in Acts about this church in Philippi that we're going to start unpacking this letter next week. The gospel created a community that never would have existed ever on its own, right? And as I said earlier, here's what we do. As people, like people are pack animals, right? We are. We just run in herds. We tend to, by nature, hang out with people that are similar to us, things that we have in common with. Right? Maybe we go to school, our kids go to school together, we work in similar jobs, those kinds of things. Here's the thing for us, right? The gospel brings people together that have no means and no business being together except their shared pursuit of Jesus. And, like we just learned, that's enough. Paul says, I can work with this. Jesus says, I can work with this. A foreign fashion designer, a former slave girl, and a jailer that almost killed himself, that'll work. Let's roll. I think we can work with this. Here's what is clear, simple, real, right, and true when it comes to the church. The simple church, it's a place where anyone and everyone can come as they are, encounter the gospel, and become
become all that God desires them to be. The Philippian church doesn't happen without Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and Luke, right? The gospel needs a conduit, right, to get into the hearts of people. And church, let me just be honest with you, that's us. The simple church is, like we just said, it is a place where anyone and everyone can come as they are, encounter the gospel, and become all that God says and desires them to be. The only way that happens is if we hold up our end of the bargain. Which says this, hey, if you keep showing up, I'll keep telling you the truth. If you keep showing up, I'll keep telling you the truth. If you're willing to wrestle me too, if you keep showing up, I'll keep, we'll keep looking for truth together. We'll keep searching for, for this thing together. We'll keep asking questions together. We'll keep looking through scripture together. We'll keep approaching Jesus together. We'll keep pursuing him together. If you show up, if you hold up your end of the bargain, I'll hold up, I'll hold up mine. Church, the simple church, it's one that's built on the gospel. That's the rock we build this thing on. That gospel needs people in the church to take it wherever they go. So this week, that's your challenge. That's your homework. We're going to unpack in groups this week. Just kind of what's your plan? What's your plan? Not to not to go out and go like, all right, my plan is to 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 like bring people in and baptize them next week. It's like I converted, like it's, it's the conversion experience. Like if that happens, that's awesome. Here's the plan, right? Here's your challenge. Have one gospel conversation this week. Find one way to share your story. Because here's the deal. No one can argue with your story. They can't look at you and go, well, that didn't happen. Find one way to share your story about your relationship with Jesus when you bumped into him, right? When you got in the same room with him and everything changed. Maybe offer to pray for people. It's, it's crazy. When you offer to pray for someone, very rarely do people look at you and go, no thanks. Most of the time they're like, yeah, okay. The simple church is a place for anybody and everybody to come as they are, encounter the gospel, and become all that Jesus desires them to be, and become all that God says we can be. But in order for that to happen, we have to be the church. That's what's clear, real, right, and true. So I'm gonna pray for us today you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you, right? I'll be down on this side, Nick, we'll be over here, we'll have people around the room, if you need if you need prayer, seek one of us out, we would love to pray with you. If today, you want to say yes to Jesus, I'd love to have those conversations with you too. Today, you want to join, be a part of this simple church, this simple community, love to have you join the family. We can talk about that as well. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to worship together. Jesus, we love you. Today, we, we want to get back to the basics. We want to get back to the, the, the simple, the simple gospel simple truth, the simple reality that you make possible. It's not overcomplicated by our conditions and our consequences, but is the truth about who you are and who you're after. You came to seek and save the lost. Jesus, may this church, may this community be a place that anyone and everyone, no matter what they're going through, what they're dealing with, can, can walk into this place and know that this is a place where you can ask questions. This is a place where you can wrestle with doubt and fear. This is a place where you don't have to look the part, act the part, sound the part. You can bring all your mess into this space and get in the same room with Jesus. That's what we're about. Father, I pray as we go through this series, as we look at what it just means to get back to the basics, God, that, that you help us shed that weight, the weight of self-righteousness and religion. Father, I pray for some of us in this, in this room that have been wounded in the past by the church, that this would be an opportunity to heal, to hear the fact that, that you didn't say those words, somebody else did. That's not how you feel about us. You love us and you like us. 
Jesus, I pray that as we go out and look for opportunities to share your story, that people's hearts would be soft, that their ears would be open, that they would see something in us the same way that Lydia and the slave girl and the jailer saw in Paul and Timothy and Silas and Luke. There's something different. Tell me about that. Jesus, we pray for a simple gospel. We pray for a simple church to be the church. Should we pray? Amen. Amen. You guys can stand and sing. This is an oldie, but a good.